Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, one of the presenters at Dragon Bites and a paediatric trainee based here in Wales. We've been very fortunate this week. Dr David Evans, Vice President of Training and Assessment with the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health, has kindly taken some time out of his busy schedule to have a chat with us about the impact that COVID has had on paediatric training in the UK. Stacey Harris, one of our regular presenters, is joined by Hannah Davis, one of our newest presenters, who's doing her first episode with us to have a chat with Dr David Evans about these issues. So hopefully this will answer a lot of the questions that trainees will inevitably have about the effect that COVID is going to have on their training. Anyway, take it away, Stacey. So thank you very much, um, Dr. David Evans, for joining us today. Um, You're the Vice President for Training and Assessments for the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health. Um, And we wanted to talk to you today a little bit about training and the impact of the coronavirus on on our training really. Um, I suppose uh, we understand how it's affected us individually but it would have affected different trainees differently and given your role you have uh, the best overarching view I suppose of um, how it's affected trainees in general. I was wondering if you could briefly summarise the key points and the key things that has affected uh, trainees during this time. Yeah, okay, thanks. Um, Well, you're definitely right in that it's affected trainees in many different ways. I think it's probably safe to say that there were very few trainees it hasn't impacted, but some have been impacted much more than others. Um, And I suppose as a general principle, it possibly has the potential to impact those trainees who are closer to finishing um, than other trainees. Um, we've got a great advantage in the paediatric curriculum in that it's a fairly it's a new curriculum and it defines um, the outcomes. So that's what we why we call it an outcomes based curriculum and it's not based on time or having to do certain rotations. So it means that if if the rotations are impacted and you haven't been able to do certain things, certain jobs, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, you you won't get there in the end because. After all, it's the outcomes, what you need for a CCT, which is the key thing. There are a number of trainees, though, who have uh, who are coming up to the end and are expecting to CCT at the end of this year, so sort of August or September. Um, and some of those were due to do the start assessment uh, that was in April, and that unfortunately got cancelled. Um, and so they're in the situation where they want to uh, finish but they haven't done their start assessment. Now, we know the start assessment is a formative assessment, but it's still mandatory. The GMC require every trainee to do it. Um, And our next planned start uh, is not until October. So we've been working quite hard to to try and see if we can come up with a solution for those trainees. And we think there's about 20 trainees involved. And we've, we've asked trainees to let us know. We've asked heads of schools and all the CSACs. Um, and what we're hoping to do is, is to run a, a remote um, start, probably based on a reduced number of scenarios, just for those trainees to start with, 
so that we can get them through their CCT. And so those are the ones who have probably been impacted most and, and hopefully we can, um, we, we can mitigate against that. There will be some trainees though, perhaps doing subspecialty training, who found their training quite disrupted because a lot of the services have been um, shut down effectively. So there have been quite a few uh, cutbacks in community services during the uh, sort of redeployment. Uh, so trainees may have been redeployed or their clinics may have stopped um, actually running. There's quite a few subspecialists who might have gone to certain types of clinics, outpatient-based clinics or procedures such as get, uh, endoscopy, um, and that has, has been curtailed. Now, we know, we hope that those services will be restarting, but they're probably going to be restarting on a, on a rather reduced capacity um, because of things like social distancing and, and rearranging the departments. And so it may take some time for those trainees to get that experience ready for their subspecialty recognition. Um, and as I said, it's probably going to affect those trainees who are closer to the end because there's not, there's not so much time for them to have you know, it, it made up um, for them. So you can imagine if you're in your first year of subspecialty training and you miss out on, on some aspects, you've got another sort of two years um, to, to have those uh, learning opportunities reprovided. And we'd hope within two years there'd be, um, you know, even in the new normal, even if there's not a vaccine, a lot of activity has to pick up because we are looking after children who need those services. So I think that those are the, the, the ones who are perhaps most worried because they can see their certification and, and therefore getting a job being at risk because of the immediate impact which is happening just at the end of their training. And David, you know, you said you were having meetings with the GMC about uh, the remote start assessment. Has there been any updates about that at all? Um, well, I think the, the GMC are very open to uh, solutions. And um, until we give them a concrete proposal, they're not going to give us a concrete approval. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be they're the regulator after all, and they're going to be quite careful to make sure we, um, you know, stick with the standards and um, if if we do um, reduce the number of scenarios we, we can assure them that we're not compromising patient safety and, and those sort of things um, but from preliminary discussions because in a way we wanted to try and see was this something that was worth us working up as it were or if it was going to you know if it was never going to be approved there wasn't much point um, but I, I, you know, I, I was encouraged that the GMC were open to these suggestions. Um, so I think uh, now this sort of balls back in our court, really. So we've been having a meeting this morning about um, the start for the 20 odd trainees, um, but also thinking about starting October as well, because I, I think what, when we go to the GMC, we'll, we'll probably have two proposals, those for the small number of trainees who need start before August, mm -hmm. September, and also what's going to happen going forward because you know we plan to run start in Manchester. We you know have our circuits. Um, lots of trainees come in and they meet lots of assessors and they walk from room to room. And um, probably pretty good uh, I ideal spreading ground for virus. So you know we we can't do that anymore. And some trainees will be shielding. We don't know what the um, transport links are going to be 
there may be another surge. Um, so we can't depend on running start uh, as if it was last year. So I think part of the discussion this morning was also about what a new look start would be like um, before, we, before we can go back to what we would like. Um, and so I think there will be a series of um, proposals to the GMC. Do you see more virtual assessments and interviews in the new horizon with paediatrics going forward? Uh, oh, undoubtedly. And I, I, I think it sort of, uh, it reflects, um, you know, more interviews and, and remote consultations with, with parents and, and outpatients and those sort of things too. So I think it is going to be the new way of working. Um, I think uh, the we also had a, an impact on recruitment, of course. We, we'd done our ST1 recruitment, but we were about to recruit for three and four and also the re-advert for one and, uh, and the lockdown happened just at that, that time. And it didn't really give us sufficient time to do any remote recruitment uh, because we needed to do it within a, within a week or so. So those, those trainees have been appointed on the basis of their application and that's been the same across other specialties as well. Um, but I'm thinking, you know, the next our next round of recruitment will probably be for subspecialty recruitment, so grid recruitment. Um, and I can imagine that will be uh, a remote uh, a remote basis. So there is um, for that to go ahead this year, just more virtual based? Yes, I mean, uh, uh, we will undoubtedly recruit to grid. Um, whether they, the interviews will be exactly at the same time or they may be a bit later in, in the academic year. So they might be, you know, in, in 2021, early 2021 instead of late 2020. Um, but, the, the, you know, we're, we're learning quite a lot about um, how other institutions work as well. So, you know, when we do our exams, we use um, suppliers that are uh, used to looking after exams for other other agencies um, and, and um, you know they've got quite a lot of technical expertise and, and also a lot of the universities of course have had to uh, had to do their medical student finals and various exams remotely um, and so there's quite a, a rapidly evolving body of experience on how to run uh, assessments um, and uh, you know I think that's uh, something we've got to get engaged with really. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating actually. You know how quickly everybody's learning and how to ch and how to change given the coronavirus. Uh, mm. If a, if a trainee's been redeployed to adult medicine, then that's going to be quite difficult to, for them to uh, get their competencies signed off and things like that. Um, so will they will they be expected to do their post again? Or would they just be able, would they have to do their post um, maybe in a shorter period of time and try and get the competencies um, more quickly? What what's the? Uh, so it's quite difficult to cover every individual circumstance, but as a general principle, um, again, a lot of, of well, from my experience, many of the staff that were redeployed were relatively junior for my own uh, trust, for example, because. They were a bit closer to general medicine than some of the senior trainees and certainly a lot closer than the consultants. Um, now, they would therefore have more time to pick up their paediatric capabilities. And I think the other thing that we have encouraged quite early on is to say, well, actually, if you look at the capabilities, a large number of them 
are shared across all the specialties. So, you know, we restructured the curriculum into our 11 domains. And there are some domains which are fairly specific, but many of the other domains are not. So we've got teaching, we've got research, we've got leadership, um, you know, many and professionalism. Many of those are just as applicable in other walks of medicine. And so I think we've been trying to encourage trainees where possible is to look at their experience and think, well, what have I learned from that? And I think quite a few people have said, well, actually, when we've been redeployed into adults, we've sort of seen how the adult world works and how they've uh, reconfigured the hospital and how they've made these different teams. And part, what, what I'd encourage people to do is actually reflect on that and say, well, what aspects have I seen that I could bring back into paediatrics? And I think there's, there may be quite a lot of cross-fertilisation there. Yeah, it's a great opportunity for learning from other departments, isn't it? Yes, yeah. And, and, of course, there are quite a few trainees who have been shielding for, for various reasons. Um, and they may be feeling slightly frustrated as well because they're not, uh, they're not in a patient-facing role. Um, but, again, it might be time to uh, think about doing some projects, some audit projects, writing some guidelines. <laughs> There's been so many guidelines to write, invariably with the words COVID in the title. Um, you know, lots of uh, reconfiguration. How do we do this? What about, um, you know, having a, a patient pathway? Ha- what, ha- what happens if uh, a child needs resuscitating in the middle of the ward? You know, there's lots of, lots of things they could think about and contribute to. Um, also, um, many of our teaching programmes have been disrupted. So we're now thinking about how to re-provide that teaching and learning um, and reprovide it in an electronic form. So if somebody's shielding and has got an interest in medical education, they could think about, well, how can I turn some of the um, teaching uh, sessions that we normally run, how can I turn them into a, a sort of electronic form or remote form? Uh, how can I come up with some sort of uh, you know, e-learning uh, substitute? Um, and, and of course, yeah, sorry, th- those sort of things would be very, very useful for a CV going forwards as well, because uh, they're sort of distinct projects that you've uh, done, you've had the idea, or you've worked in a team, and so they're they're very val- valuable actually for a CV. The teaching has actually progressed quite quickly in Wales, and at the moment we've got virtual teaching pretty much every day going on, and it's mm. all Wales, and we can log in at one o'clock every day, and there's teaching from one of the units, and it's providing teaching because yeah. obviously we can't get together yeah. for our deanery teaching so that's kind of substituted it but it gives the option for people who are shielding and those on maternity leave to still engage with the teaching program yes well i mean that's brilliant and um what you might think about how you might supplement the teaching because it, it as you know and if you use any teaching method it will always have an advantage in one respect but there'll be a disadvantage in another respect so um there'll be certain people who might not be able to engage so well in the teaching or, or certain subjects that aren't so well provided by that type, type of teaching. So, you know, I'd encourage people to think about, well, how can we, okay, we've managed to move it to an electronic platform, but how, how can we sort of provide that interaction? Or uh, And I think a lot of teaching has, has sort of moved from being centred around an event. And so what you might have is you might have an initial presentation, but then you keep the forum open 
open and you, you keep a sort of moderated chat or you you know you, you try and spread the teaching a, across the week rather than just around that one event so there's lots of things people can do there's the one thing that we've been doing as well in newport so i don't know if you want to talk about the covid based teaching yeah, so we've been doing um, really, we actually got, uh, got the idea from another unit in Wales. Um, but um, yeah, it's a really short teaching session based on, it's, it's C-O-V-I-D. So I think it's a case orientated, very interesting discussions. Um, <laughs> very, really good, very good, um, very good. Of just getting more teaching in into our um day-to-day -day life and yeah. uh, uh but in kind of yeah very informal and it can be you know as quick as you like i was about to say it should, it should be in 19 minutes surely <laughs> yeah that's a good idea actually yeah might, might have to add that in um, I was just wondering as well, David, you, I, I follow you on Twitter and you mentioned this uh, interesting, the three side effects of COVID that you saw, that number one, everyone will value trainees as doctors. Number two, ARCPs will become less bureaucratic. And number three, that educational mm -hmm. supervision will become centred around support. I was just wondering if you wanted to elaborate on that and give us a bit more information. Well, it's great you reminded me because I think, oh my goodness, I can't remember what I wrote now. Um, well, uh, I certainly think that um, one of the things about training is, is that I was very impressed in a sense that, of course, when there's a crisis and you need lots of highly skilled, highly adaptable people, then the trainees are the perfect people to go and you know man intensive care units or ED or COVID wards, and and it just shows you how the hospital have have suddenly realised that how adaptable and quick learners um, trainees are, whether they be you know paediatric trainees or or other trainees. So that I think that was part of my thinking about people who actually start to value trainees that they're, they're now you know doing something that's vital for the health service it's not just their trainees they are actually young adaptable doctors so <clears throat> that was very much the first thing valuing them as doctors what they can actually do not just their you know their str stringing along to the service and being trained you know i think the second point was the arcp so i th i think when I wrote that, I was aware that it was going to be very busy. Now, at the moment, the, the peak hasn't been as bad as we thought, and touch wood, hopefully, it'll stay fairly low. But I'm sure we'll have a bit of a bumpy ride. Yeah. And I was anticipating that people would be pretty busy, and so you know, not so able to um, polish their portfolios, and also educational supervisors won't wouldn't be um, that. Uh, you know, available to do lots and lots of um, reading and um, going through the, the portfolios. So I thought, actually, well, what it will probably do is concentrate the mind on what do we really need? How do we judge whether a trainee is a good doctor and, and can progress? Um, and so can we therefore get rid of some of the other things and actually measure what we really value so that's what what i meant about arcps becoming a bit less bureaucratic yeah 
And one of the things we've done for the COVID, as you've probably been aware, is there's a, there's a new COVID educational supervisors report for ARCP. And we have actually slimmed that down a lot. And we've also slimmed down the, um, the assessments required for each trainee to progress just for this year. Yeah. And, and we've done that in that sense. We've slimmed it down to pick out the things we think are of best value in predicting how a trainee is and you know, how, how, how valuable the trainee um, uh, is. Um, so the last point was about educational supervision. And um, uh, I was thinking that, well, you know, this has been a pretty anxiety-laden time for everybody, really. So I think um, it's very important that we all support each other. And that my, my hope was that educational super, supervision would be less worried about the bureaucracy of things and more concerned about, uh, you know, the, the human nature um, and looking after the, the trainees individual. Um, and I think uh, we were just talking before this podcast about, you know, being st- stuck at home and then actually going to work is actually quite um, a, a bit of a release because you start to see more people and it's actually quite nice to work in a team. And I think uh, as doctors, although going to see patients and the thought of, of COVID being in a clinical environment is is um, a bit anxiety uh, provoking it's still nice to see people and that human touch is what what keeps us going that's um, one thing so that I, I really missed yeah. is just seeing everybody's faces and catching up with everybody that's right yeah yeah and i think education supervision hopefully when when we all reflect on this from an educational point of view we'll, we'll sort of see well you know trainees yes they were really valued because see what they did um, and arcps we managed to cut down some of the bureaucracy but we still maintain the value of it and actually, the most important thing about education supervision is, is the sort of personal support um, and developmental support, not necessarily filling out all the forms. Do you think that's something we need to emphasise and work on, working towards the future, that this becomes more of a staple part of the educational supervisor role? Yes, I think, I think many, um, many supervisors have, have got those, have got, you know, buy into that uh, philosophy. Um, but I think sometimes it can be quite difficult to do it if there are lots of bureaucratic forms and lot, you know lot, lots of different things to fill in. And um, so I, you know, I th- I think uh, that the whole COVID pr- pandemic really has perhaps made us reevaluate what's important in life, and that's both in education and medicine and, and in general. I think. Yeah, I think there's definitely, like, don't get me wrong, there's lots of negatives of what's happened with COVID, but I think it's also made us reflect on the importance of each other and team and well-being, and I think that's a massive positive. Yeah, and the the college have got quite a a big interest in well-being as part of uh, sort of recruitment and retention campaigns. So, you know, we're aware of um, the numbers of paediatric applicants falling over the years and so we've had a recruitment campaign but we realise that there's no point in recruiting people unless you can retain them yeah and so there's been a big bigger focus this year and on the ongoing you know in in forthcoming years on thinking about well-being and and what does that mean and and I think it means different things to different people and so it's not a question of just providing yoga to everybody or or whatever it's a, a thinking of what keeps people going what what support do they need and that's a different 
for different personalities and also for different stages of your life, both your personal life and also your professional life. Yeah. And with regards to recruitment to uh, potential paediatric doctors, um, obviously some people have been denied the opportunity to work in paediatrics before applying to start the paediatric programme. Is there anything put in place in regards to the applications or are people being penalised for not having the paediatric experience at all? Um, well, I suppose the, the short answer is is in all the uh, recruitment uh, questions and the scenarios and the, the way we mark uh, during the interviews, we've been very careful not to score people on paediatric experience, but more their aptitude um, generally and whether they would make a suitable paediatrician. Um, now, I do understand that... Uh, for people to make a decision about what pathway would they like to do, uh, they often value having the experience first and also having the experience um, means that they can see the patients and they can see the teams uh, and who they're going to be working with and, it, uh, and, and so it can um, enthuse them. Um, yeah. But I, I want to be reassuring to people applying to paediatrics that what we're looking for is potential paediatricians. What we're not looking for is experienced paediatricians. And yeah. it's the ability, you know, I think paediatrics is just as academic, it's just as um, needs critical thinking, it needs powerful diagnostic abilities, uh, as well as communication skills, etc. etc. Um, and if you've got excellent skills, then you would make an excellent paediatrician. And we're looking for those skills not for the fact you've worked in paediatrics before. Right, that's really good to know and hopefully that will reassure some people who've missed out on the opportunity and foundation training to have those mm. opportunities. Hannah and I have both listened to your webinar that you did um, at the beginning of this month, um, which actually answered quite a lot of the questions that we had for you with regards to um, missing exams, as I understand that you're planning to try and... Um, do as many exams remotely and the logistics of that hasn't quite been worked out yet is that right uh yes uh that that's a sort of a, the understatement I'm, I'm sighing because we're just uh starting to grapple with that um particularly that i think the most difficult question is the clinical exam um so as you know we we already have a system of computer-based testing for the three components uh before you do the clinical exam now, um, they, there will need to be some changes uh, for that because at the moment they're delivered by various centres around the UK and people travel to them and we would probably uh, look to see what options are available, whether we have more sort of secure um, uh, centres, secure in terms of, uh, sort of you know, hygiene and uh, make sure things are disinfected and that computers are spaced but also options for people to uh, undertake the assessment uh, and the exams remotely using their own computers. And you know, this is where we have looked at um, and um, spoken to people who have used that for things like medical student exams and theory exams. And uh, the terminology we, we're using is remote proctoring, where you can undertake an exam in your own uh, environment at home. Um, but you may use your mobile to, to film you doing it so that, you know, the invigilator can be assured that you're not looking up all the answers or you're not Googling things as you're doing the exam. 
So the theory, the theory exams, you know, technology will, will help there. We were just sort of starting to think about the clinical exams and you might say, well, why didn't we think about them earlier? Well, I think, you know, the situation wasn't very clear earlier on. Um, but I think now it, it is clear that it's going to take a long time before we can get back to normal. And I think, again, we need to look at a range of options for clinical and try and reduce the uh, requirement for, you know, NHS premises uh, and possibly the requirements for patients as well. Many of the pediatric patients who are, you know, well known to centres that come and do exams, they may well be the sorts of patients that would be shielded. Um, so we won't be able to rely on those. Um, and, and perhaps we may have to substitute other things that might reflect how we're changing our approach to clinical medicine anyway. So we were talking about, well, what, what about having a station where you have a remote consultation with a patient? Uh, you know, over you know, Zoom or whatever. Um, or there may be um, consultations where you, you have a GP referral and, and the idea is is how, how you support that GP managing the patient at home, which is what we would want as well, and how you would triage. So I think that, that there are lots of challenges, but part of the challenges will be opportunities as well. Um, and so I think the examination, the clinical examination, is perhaps the, the less well worked up uh, proposals at the moment um, uh, and that's one of the tasks to start thinking about in the in the next few weeks really is as the exam exec meets and I think we are keeping an eye on some of the other colleges as well um, to see how they have approached it and, and how the GMC have um, you know engaged in that process so you may be aware that the um, GPs had to cancel their exams halfway through their clinical exams and so there's a huge number of GPs who can't finish and therefore can't get a GP job until this has been sorted. So the, the GP college are looking at different ways of doing assessments, some of which we can learn from, um, but other bits aren't really applicable to us. But it's one of those you know, questions of, of looking at all the various colleges, seeing the approaches and trying to pick um, what would be more appropriate for us. Um, potentially using it to improve the exam in some respects, you know, move forward in a, in a technological point of view. Um, but also we, we ha you know, have to realise that maybe we can't use patients as, as well as we might for these you know, next number of diets until we get a vaccine or until the virus is controlled or, or whatever. So uh, it's being adaptable really and looking at, uh, again at the range of options. So I think our next UK clinical exam is October. So we need to have something in place for them. Um, the, the GMC have agreed for our proposal that for ST3 trainees who haven't yet got their membership, they can progress to ST4. That's not a problem. Uh, they would get a, a COVID outcome of, of a 10.1, which is a no-fault uh, outcome, uh, saying that you know the reason they didn't get an outcome one is because they were unable to take the exam because of the COVID restrictions. But that, that can't go on forever. Um, and uh, we, we'll need to move ahead with exams. So, um, but there will be a bit of a changed, um, a, 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 you know, a, a changed format from before. Oh, that, that's really, really interesting, actually. And there's lots of things that I'd not considered before. Um, so we were going to ask about grid and spin applications. And you said that that will be going ahead 
but hopefully in perhaps a different format more virtually is that right yes um so we do need people to enter into level three training uh so we will be doing some sort of grid application process it will probably be some form of interview or um you know remotely um before covid came about we were looking at um actually delaying the grid interviews uh, a bit later into the academic year anyway so that trainees may have a bit more uh, time to prepare um, and one of the reasons was was um part of our changes with shape of training which which may be you know a couple of years hence um what I wanted to try and do is was introduce some element of flexibility so that trainees, if they entered the grid and they felt that actually that it wasn't quite right for them, they could move from one grid to the other, you know, going through an interview, but they could move from one grid to the other and they wouldn't necessarily need to extend their training because quite a few of the grids have, a, have quite similar curricula. Uh, or they share common curricula. So, for example, if you're a neonatologist, you can do a, a six months in PICU and six months in cardiology. It would still count towards your uh, neonatal grid. So if you started off in PICU, you could probably swap to neonatology and it wouldn't affect your CCT load. But it's very difficult to make the decision to swap if the grid interviews are in November, when you've only just started the grid in September. So one of the... Uh, drivers for moving the grid appointment you know later in the year was to give people a bit more flexibility and a bit more time to prepare so we'd probably open the application around the same time but there'd be a much longer window uh, for people to consider their application uh, and we may do this this year that that's something to uh, be determined really i think that leads to, to a grid application process that sounds like a really good idea actually yeah yeah so i think you know there's there was reasons before COVID to try and do that. So maybe COVID might be just one of those things that just hastens the change. And we talked already about how interviews um, will probably go ahead, but uh, perhaps virtually and, and on of a slightly different format as well, didn't we? Yeah. Um, so, and then we also talked about the beginning of, of, of this, uh, the impact on CCT and that people further, further um, into their training um this probably will affect them most but um we're trying you're trying to arrange some start examinations which hopefully will be virtual perhaps delayed is that right after cct uh well uh, i think that was perhaps one of our first plans was maybe we could give a cct and then complete start afterwards but i think that's probably not a, the best solution the best solution is to try and get people through the start assessment so that we can give them a cct and they'll feel that their cct is a normal cct you know it hasn't been devalued and that sort of thing okay um, and and because uh, at, at the last count it was about 19 or 20 trainees it, we could probably offer slightly more of a bespoke solution to those trainees but then of course for october start um, we know that 168 trainees were cancelled, so we'll have to um, catch up on the backlog and, um, you know, all the social distancing and the things we talked about mean that start may well have to change and incorporate some element of, of remote working. Yeah, wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's a lot to think about, isn't it? You poor thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I suppose... I was really interested to hear about 
sort of how to get the most out of our training during this time and I know yeah. it's going to be different for different people and different people we will be getting a different training experience to others but um and we did touch on this a little bit at the start but how can we make the most out of our opportunistic training experiences um I think it, it's you have there's lots of ideas and I was just musing to myself as you're asking the question really I think Sometimes when you are um, perhaps a relatively junior trainee, you, you get redeployed to adults, you feel sort of slightly cut adrift and um, you perhaps don't realise that a lot of the experiences you're getting are excellent learning opportunities but very, very relevant to paediatrics as well. Um, as I said, it's about uh, working in teams, uh, there'll be leadership elements to it They'll be talking to families, they'll be breaking bad news. There's lots of safeguarding issues now. I think adults have caught up uh, in terms of safeguarding. You know, there's um, issues with dementia care and capacity issues. So things that are very, very applicable to paediatrics. Where I fear there's a problem is not the fact that the learning opportunities aren't there, but people won't realise the learning opportunities are there. And this is why I think it's important to keep in touch with your educational supervisor, uh, who's a paediatrician, um, during the time when you may be redeployed. And perhaps, you know, just have a, a little chat every so often and perhaps, you know, relay some of your experiences. And I think part of the role for the educational supervisor is saying, well, actually, you know, that experience isn't dissimilar to something I had to handle, you know, last year. Okay, it's an adult, but the actual... Um, the, the crux of the issue here was to do with their capacity and the fact that extended family wanted one thing as a conflict of interest. That's just very, very applicable in paediatrics. How about reflecting on that and, and drawing out the similarities between adults and paediatrics, but also looking at the differences between adults and paediatrics? And that would be quite a powerful uh, learning opportunity, um, but only if you realise it. And I think that's the, the main issue. I think that's where um, reflections are going to play a real key part at the moment is just putting in your ideas, your thoughts and your feelings of encounters that you've had and being yeah. able to come back on them and interpret them and make them relevant to our paediatric experience is going to be crucial. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think my advice is, is just to jot something down. Don't don't sort of aim to, to produce a finely polished piece of reflection just write something down in the time. Yeah. Um, there's a little, there's a form on the ePortfolio, just, you know, jot it down on that and then go back to your education supervisor and say, well, these are all the, my little sort of half or quarter filled out forms. Which do you think we should, you know, develop and, and what, what do you think? So get something down on paper or electronically first and then, and then deal with it later. David, um, I'm, I know that some of the middle grade staff were quite concerned if they were redeployed to adults about, you know, not having had any contact with adults for quite a while, especially adult medicine. And I was just wondering, was there any guidance prepared by the college in regards to protecting us or giving supervision to the adult med medics who would be looking after us in regards to looking after our educational needs? Um, I don't think there was anything specific. I think what happened was most of the redeployment was handled via the postgraduate deans and the trusts 
So I think when whenever there was a request to um, redeploy trainees, the postgraduate dean had to look at whether they were suitable to move and also to be assured that there was sufficient support, both from a pastoral sense, but also from an educational sense and also a clinical supervision sense, that those trainees wouldn't be put uh, in a vulnerable position. Um, and my own trust ran quite a few uh, sort of teaching, um, team building things and it got people sort of in, induced into their team well before any patients arrived. Um, yeah. And I think by and large, from what I heard, but I know, obviously I didn't do a systematic survey of the country, I think many, many trainees felt reasonably well supported to start with. Now, I think we do have a bit of a problem at the moment, not that they're unsupported, but I think quite a few trainees are still redeployed because there's been a nervousness about whether there'll be a second wave as the lockdown is being eased. Yeah. And um, I think we're quite keen that the trainees come back to paediatrics as soon as possible, uh, yeah. rather than twiddling their thumbs you know, in empty wards just because people are worried that there might be a second wave. Uh, our own trust have released our trainees back to us with the proviso that should they be needed again, of course, they, they would be redeployed. The other question I had, David, was um, with online and virtual learning resources becoming more and more prevalent, is there any that you'd recommend or that you found that are uh, good for the paediatric training programme? Well, I suppose there's lots, lots of things you don't want to name check necessarily people, but uh, I find Twitter a very useful source because you get sign, signposted to a lot of um, educational activities. Um, and uh, both from a sort of scientific point of view, so many of the papers that are published about COVID, you know, people will tweet about very early on. Uh, and then there are lots of uh, organisations, and of course Dragon Bites is a, a good example, but things like Don't Forget the Bubbles and, and lo lots of those, because I've been people who engage in Twitter tend to be the ones who are quite um, tech savvy and will, will produce um, good uh, quality resources that can be accessed. Um, the college of um, uh, having to re-look really at their educational uh, provision, so educational provision rather than educational supervision, so that this is what training materials we offer, and that's not just to trainees, but that's to every paediatrician. Um, so we, we run lots of courses, um, uh, you know, the how-to courses and, and safeguarding and, and lots of things. Yeah. Um, and of course... You know, we can't base those around events anymore. And we're, we're having to change how we provide those and provide them in, in more of an electronic format. Um, but those sort of courses, I think, will take a, a bit longer. So I think there should be a second wave coming maybe in the, few, in the next few months or so, um, thinking about some of the uh, reprovision electronically from the college. Thank you, David, for um, very informative answers to the questions that we had. I just thought we'd go to final thoughts, really. So what are your main messages to trainees at the moment? Um, well, I think my first message to trainees uh, was don't worry and don't worry about your training. And I think that still holds to a certain extent. Um, what I've tried to do is to reduce some of the barriers to progression um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I don't appreciate there's been problems with the learning opportunities but what I mean is is 
people, if they want to progress, then they uh, and they're good um, and they know what they want to do, then they should be allowed to progress, and their progression shouldn't be halted by some, you know, missing assessment. Um, and that's why we've we've cut down to the really important assessments. There will be some trainees who may have had their training uh, disrupted um, and they may not want to progress. Um, and I, I know an example might be somebody who's been very keen on community child health and perhaps wants to do it as a subspecialty. Um, and they did their general paediatrics in ST4 and they did some neonates at the beginning of ST5. And they were really looking forward to doing their community child health in ST5. And then they got redeployed and lots of the community services stopped. Now, what I'm not saying is that trainee should be pushed through, but what the trainee needs to do is, is go to their head of school or the training programme director and their education supervisor and have a discussion um, about whether they could progress to, to level three perhaps, but have, to have the training reprovided at a later date or whether they actually might find it advantageous to be held at level two for another six months to get that training in. Um, so I think it's about trying to allow trainees who know what they want to progress if they can. Um, but for other trainees, if they're worried about things, the first place really is your educator supervisor, uh, followed by your programme director. And I think it's, it's fine for me to, you know, make guidance. Um, but the real work, the hard work, is going to be in lots of negotiations and conversations up and uh, you know up and down the country, figuring out how to get trainees back on their intended track. And I think the other thing we don't yet know is quite how long the, the tail of this pandemic will go and, and how services will be impacted for a long time. I think I suppose my my message of reassurance is is that if the service is going to be impacted for a long time, then we're training people to work in that service. So there's no point in going back to a service which will never never arise. You know, if we're if we're if we're not seeing so many patients face to face, then it's really important for us to train people on how to do really good remote consultations, how to pick up cues remotely. So I think it's about being adaptable and and not worrying too much about what you might have lost from COVID, but think about how you might get training and how your training might change because of COVID. There are lots of people whose life plans have been put on hold because of COVID. Uh, and that's, in, you know, in terms of people who've had their marriages uh, delayed or their OOP is delayed. There's people in research, research projects have been closed down. There's you know, self-employed people who've lost their jobs or lost their, their finances. I mean, it's ha had such a profound impact on everybody that I think lots of people will be sympathetic. I hope they will be sympathetic to all our trainees. But it's a question we all have to muddle through. And in some cases, it, it will be a bit of a muddle through. Just be patient. We're in it for the long the long haul. It's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And so you, if you felt you've just fallen behind a little bit, on that last sprint, there's a long, long time and a long, long way to go for you to, to catch up. Definitely. And I'd just like to take this opportunity to say thank you for being so clear and honest for guidance for trainees since the beginning. And I think we were one of the only um, 
subspecialties to just be open and honest straight away and give as much guidance as possible. Yes. And I know that was really well. I think uh, I think that that was my intention. I think it's always a bit. Um, there's always a temptation to think, oh well, I won't tell people about our plans just yet because we're meeting with the GMC next week or we're having a committee meeting the week after that. You know, if we just wait for another two weeks. But of course, in life, you you have those meetings. It's never quite finalised, and so I just took the um, took the approach of let's just say everything early on, and I I have a lot of confidence in trainees who realise that what we say is subject to change. It is subject to negotiation in the GMC, and it's subject to what happens with the COVID pandemic. People are mature enough to realise, but what we're trying to do is is give give you a message of our intention, which is our intention is to support training and support this uh, big sort of uh, impact wherever we can, really. No, definitely. And it's been really well received. Thank Good, you. thanks. Yeah, I echo that too. <laughs> so I'm sure if uh, both of us feel that way, then you've managed to reassure and sort of comfort, I suppose, um, the paediatric trainees across the country. Good. I just wanted to say thank you to Stacey Harris and Hannah Davis for recording that podcast for us. And a very special thank you to Dr. David Evans for taking so much time out of his busy schedule to do that for us. Hopefully that's answered a lot of your questions. Anyway, that's it for this week of Dragon Bites. Please join us again next week where we'll be continuing our series of cardiology lectures from Professor Orhan Uzun. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites. Thank you.